Let's begin. We're in the book of Hebrews tonight, and let's begin with a prayer. Father, I ask as we look to your word that you would open its meaning to us uh, to spend uh, the uh, just you know, 45 minutes looking at a large book is always a challenge. And yet, Lord, we pray that you would just give us that unique perspective, that overview of your spirit, that we might really grasp this book's meaning. We trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the letter to the Hebrews is uh, unlike any other book in the Bible in that we're given no direct information as to who wrote it. I mean, there are all sorts of suggestions from Barnabas to Apollos to Silas to Priscilla and Aquila uh, to Philip. Uh, Really kind of, it's like a lot of people kind of nominate whoever happens to be their favorite character, I think, at that moment. Um, we're not told exactly when it was written, but we have some pretty good ideas. And we aren't told who it's written to, although we're pretty certain that we can narrow that down as well. In fact, it was Clement of Alexandria who was writing around the, about around the year 200 AD, um, probably about 130 years after the letter was written, who uh, said that the book was written in Hebrew originally, written in the Hebrew language, and that it was translated into Greek by Luke. And so the supposition or inference was that Paul was the actual writer, but he wrote it in the Hebrew language. Uh, This might help to explain uh, what we call the language dissimilarities in the text between Paul's other letters and those which are, we find here in the book of Hebrews. It is uh, an expression of very high Greek writing. I mean, it's very, very, very cultured and sophisticated. The vocabulary is, is very extensive. I mean, it's really a, a high work of literature uh, of that time. Whoever wrote it had a brilliant grasp of the biblical message. I mean, his discussions about the temple, the rituals, the sacrifices, the law, uh, Israel's history in regards to all these things. This is someone who is extremely learned, extremely scholarly. And that's why, again, most people think if it was written by Paul, it would make sense because he himself was such a scholar. The only other individual from the New Testament record we have who has that kind of scholarly background was probably Apollos. And so it could be either of those. Those tend to be the the top uh, candidates. But as to whom it was written, that's really pretty clear. It was written to Jewish believers in Jesus. We might today call them Messianic believers, particularly because in chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul makes that inference. He says, therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest, whom we confess. So obviously he's writing to believers who come from a strong Judaic background. In fact, even the original title that we, at least the one that goes back the longest, it begins with to the Hebrews. And so it seems to substantiate that it's written to Jewish believers. Um, when or where it was written, we don't know exactly where it was written. Again, uh, some people have suggested Jerusalem as a possibility. Um, but we can make a good estimate as to when it was written. 
Because the first, the oldest reference we have directly quoting from the book of Hebrews is from uh, Clement of, of Rome who wrote in 95 AD uh, before the beginning of the, the second century. He wrote and made reference or uh, quoted from the book of Hebrews. We also know that at the time it's writing the temple was still standing. Uh, its services and sacrifices were still being performed. And it also in chapter 13 makes reference to Timothy. In fact it says there in verse 23 of chapter 13, he says, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released, and if he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Now, we don't know about Timothy being uh, jailed or arrested, although it's certainly very probable that he was. Um, it seems to, ref it would have been a time after Paul's execution uh, that he would have been released. So, uh, that may in indicate that it was somebody other than Paul. But we know this for sure. It was written before the year 70 AD because that's when the temple was destroyed and it wouldn't have been referenced as an existing building uh, by that time. But more importantly, um, when we look at it saying, well, what is the book of Hebrews really trying to say? What is the message that it wants to communicate? And it's interesting because, as you know, when I look at these books, I try to figure out what are words that are used repetitively because they tend to emphasize what is the emphasis. And in this case, 11 times we have the word better. In fact, it talks about how in Christ we have a better hope, we have a better covenant, we have better promises, we have better sacrifices, uh, a better and lasting possession, uh, a better country, which he goes on to say is a heavenly one. We have a better resurrection. He says God has planned something better for us. And even the scriptures, he says, through, through Christ are a better word than came through the Mosaic law. And what he's doing, saying essentially, it's better than the old covenant. Covenant. So the book really contrasts the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Testament, and the promises and the covenant that Israel had to the new covenant that we have in Christ Jesus. In fact, he goes on in chapter 8 and verse 5 in reference to the Old Testament saying that it was a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. And then in chapter 10 he says it was only a shadow of the good things that are coming and not the realities themselves. And so essentially he's saying when we look at the Old Testament, the temple and the sacrifice and everything, all those things were really allegories and metaphors that were designed to speak of the reality that was coming and would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. As for example, we speak of Christ being the fulfillment of the whole sacrificial system that's detailed in the book of Leviticus. So that his point becomes that Jesus is not just the Savior, but he, as a Savior, he's superior to everything else. He's, more, he's superior to all of the icons of Judaism. He's greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than the prophets, uh, greater than the priests, greater than the, very, the temple itself or the sacrifices that were offered there. Because he says in verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 6, the ministry of Jesus is as superior to, to the covenant. It's superior to the old covenant. And the reason it's superior, chapter 9, verse 14, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. So all of those animals that were sacrificed in the temple, and it's, it's, it's staggering to think about how many lambs alone and goats would have been sacrificed in the temple. We are told by one Roman uh, prefect that when he was on duty uh, in, in Rome, that on one Passover there were only over 250,000 sheep 
that were offered, lambs that were offered in sacrifice on that one Passover night. Now that had to be, they had to be killed from three in the afternoon till to about six o'clock at night. So I mean, you can imagine the amount of blood that would have been everywhere. But that's just one time. And they take that and you multiply it over hundreds of years and you realize that these sacrifices were being made over and over again, not, not just monthly or, or, or during the feast, but every day, not only in the, the overall, you know, the morning sacrifice, the evening sacrifice, but then were then people bringing their own animals. And the point was that the reason it had to be repeated because it had no real effect in the sense, what, what it did is it portrayed what needed to happen, but it didn't fix anything. It, it's kind of like if you have to do something over and over and over again, you haven't fixed anything. I remember when I first got saved, I had a, a, a 51 Chevy panel van, and um, it, was a, it was a beauty. Um, I got saved and I painted an ichthus on the, you know, the, the fish symbol with uh, Jesus Christ Savior on the side of this thing and a drive around and through Berkeley as this rolling advertisement. But this thing was, you know, it had been through its, its, its uh, it, it had covered a lot of miles. I used to buy oil by the gallon. And, I, and every time I put gas in it, I also poured a couple of quarts of oil in it so that it left this blue haze. I called it the Shekinah glory. But, you know, but the thing was, that no matter how much oil I poured into it, SDP, the SDP was way out of my budget, but no matter how much oil I put into the thing, it wasn't getting better, it was just getting worse. And the same thing in a way is with the sacrifices. The more they offered, it didn't fix the problem of sin. It just kept on emphasizing that there was this serious problem called sin. And when Jesus came, he fixed the sin problem once and for all by becoming the perfect sacrifice that met the requirements of God for justice from a sinful world. Uh, that's why he says in, in chapter 8, verse 13, the writer goes on to say, he has made the first one, speaking of the first covenant, the Old Testament covenant, he's made it obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. So we understand the idea of obsolete. It's no longer something that, that has any usefulness. And so it's, it's like, how many typewriter stores do you see today? You know, how many, how many buggy whip shops do you see? I mean, there's certain things that just have no place in our modern world. They're obsolete. And essentially saying that the old covenant was not only fulfilled, but it's, it's become obsolete. And you, be, you begin to realize as you go through the letter that this becomes the thing that he hits on over and over again from every possible direction. You can tell that he has been in long and intense debates with Jews about the Old Testament and his arguments of why it is no longer relevant but has been fulfilled in Christ. And we know from our studies that this was one of the battles that Paul constantly fought, fought where there were Jews who were trying to commingle uh, the gospel of grace with Judaism. And essentially, this writer is following in those same footsteps, arguing these same points, although he's arguing to a very informed audience of very literate and educated Jews uh, and he's arguing with them on that level. So it's a, it's a pretty sophisticated letter. But essentially, this was something that Jesus also reiterated as we find in the Gospels. I mean, for example, in Matthew 5, 17, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
In other words, to literally complete or satisfy their requirements. It's the idea that once you have paid the bill, there's no longer a debt to be resolved. There's no longer, no longer an obligation. If you go to the restaurant and you, you order your meal and then you pay the bill, you are free to leave. You're free to walk on. There's no one who expects you to then, once you pay the bill, then go into the kitchen and wash the dishes in order to cover the expense of your meal. You know, you've already paid it. It's satisfied. But essentially what Paul is arguing is that's what these people are trying to do. In fact, I would say to you that, sadly, that there are still Christians who get confused on this issue and are still basically saying, well, it's great, Jesus paid for your lunch, but now you have to go in and wash the dishes. You know, it, it, it wouldn't make any sense, but nonetheless, that's how they're saying it. So that saying it's great, you've got Jesus in your heart, but you also have to keep the Sabbath, you can't eat pork, you can, and they start going through a list of things that you can and cannot do, or must and must not do, which basically, the scriptures say, those things were satisfied in Jesus. What they were designed to do was to say something, once it was said, and the requirements were met, then it should be fulfilled, and we should go on. That's why Jesus said in Matthew eleven thirteen, all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, John the Baptist. They were speaking of a time to come, but when John the Baptist came, he fulfilled that moment. Um, in John 1, 45, we read where John writes, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What, when did Moses write about Jesus? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, he told them one day a prophet will come, and he said one of the biggest differences between him and me is you'll listen to him. <laughs> in other words, you, you won't be able to ignore his message. And so they, that was one of the earliest prophecies in Deuteronomy 18 of the Messiah that one day would come. And so he is saying to them, this, Nathaniel is saying, this is the one. This is the one we've been looking for that Moses told us would come and fulfill those promises. That's why Jesus said in John 5, 39, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. See, that was the Jewish thinking, unfortunately. Many thought because it's their knowledge of the scriptures and the fact that God had given them the scriptures that that was evidence that they had eternal life. But he goes on to say, these are the scriptures that testify about me. It's not just a, a, an information issue here that you know the information about God, but he has come to point you towards me that you might believe on me. Well, why did the writer specifically feel the need to present this to people who were already believers? And the answer really comes because he felt that they were in danger. He says in, in verse, chapter 2, verse 1, they were in danger of drifting away. The term drifting there literally was a, a nautical term that was used to describe somebody who would come up to a boat and untie it from its moorings so that it would simply be carried away by the tide as the tide went out. In other words, he says, you're just, it's, it can be imperceptible, it can happen incrementally, but somehow you just get further and further away from God because you're really not concentrating on staying connected. And that, of course, will be one of the things that he comes back to. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Stay focused. He says in, in chapter 10, he, he warned them in verse 35, do not throw away your confidence. You need to persevere. So we learn a couple things. Why are they beginning to drift? Uh, they're losing confidence. They're beginning to have to persevere. In, in chapter 12, verse 3, he says, don't grow weary and lose heart. 
So something is happening on a, an emotional level based upon things that were happening on an external level. And most scholars think that really what was taking place is persecution was beginning to fall in the church. Given the date of the book, we're pretty sure that the same persecution that ended in Paul's execution and in Peter's execution probably was reaching out throughout the empire. And there were many Jewish believers who were saying, why don't we just kind of meld back into Judaism? Because you see, Judaism was a legal religion. But Nero pronounced Christianity as being an illegal religion. So it was a crime to be a Christian. It was a crime to be baptized. It was a crime to practice your faith and to gather in fellowship with other believers. And in the face of that persecution, we know historically that many people did draw away, drift away, and kind of, kind of hide their faith so that they wouldn't suffer because of it. And what the writer is telling is saying, don't give in to that impulse or that pressure. In fact, structurally, the book is built around five warnings. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, we just read earlier where he says, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. And then in chapter 3, in verses 7 and 8, he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then in chapter 5, verse 11, he says, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. The idea that an infant needs milk, as you mature, you eat solid foods. He's saying, basically, you're really revealing that there isn't a maturity to their faith. And that's an interesting proposition, really, when he's saying, essentially, that people can have an intellectual attainment that's pretty high. I mean, these people were people who really understood not only the Old Testament, but how Christ was fulfilled, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. They had that knowledge, they had that information, and yet when it came to the character issue, the enduring strength, the inner man, they were still like infants. They were still very immature, which is always a dangerous combination. Because when you have lots of information in your head and yet you're not spiritually mature, it leads to pride and arrogance. And essentially, I think this was part of the difficulty. And he's calling him out. He's basically saying, look at what you're doing. You're acting like babes in Christ, even though you probably view yourself as being so mature. It's interesting because I would not be surprised if there were individuals coming up with very clever arguments to justify uh, hiding their faith in order to avoid difficulties. We, uh, we human beings are so good at rationalizing things that we want to do. And uh, I think that's really, of course, that's a source of a lot of bad choices and bad teaching. But even in chapter 10, we have the fourth of the five warnings where he says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire. And then finally in chapter 12, he says, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks to you. In other words, God is calling you to stand and confess. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. He says, God's calling you to stand and give testimony. Don't, don't fail to do so. On the other hand, it does not appear that the writer expected them to 
simply go completely into apostasy because he says in chapter 6 to them in verse 9, he says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. In other words, things that accompany salvation refers to things that are consistent with somebody who's saved. We, we expect that you will respond to these challenges the way a believer does and that the struggles that you're going through right now are kind of momentary blips in your journey, but we think that you will do much better. But clearly they were in trouble of some kind because later on in chapter 10, verse 38, he tells them, don't shrink back. Don't shrink back. And the, the phrase there, shrink back, is kind of interesting in the original because it, it refers to someone who timidly hesitates to speak what they believe. And uh, now I know that you, have, you can't relate to that dynamic at all. I, that's one thing I know about you, that you've never felt awkward about speaking openly about Jesus, right? Thank good. I don't even need to go there. You guys got this, right? <laughs> Simple fact was he's saying that, you know, don't shrink back. Don't allow yourself to be intimidated by your circumstance, but be confident and speak boldly of your faith, even though it may have consequences. He understood and he wanted them to understand that in the long run, it was that confidence in the face of adversity, in the face of the dangers that came because of their faith, that the gospel would find the most traction. Because it's normal. As Satan came to Job, God in the book of Job and he says, you know, if you strike a man's flesh, he'll do anything to protect himself and keep himself safe. He, you know, if anybody knows human nature, it's Satan. He's, he's been studying it forever and knows how to manipulate it really well. And I think that most of us know that's true. I mean, I don't like pain of any kind. I don't like discomfort of any kind. And if I can find a way to avoid pain and make myself comfortable, I'm going to work on it. You know, it's just, it's kind of the way, it's like you get on an airplane and you see a, a, a row that's empty and nobody's sitting in it and your mind begins, am I the only one that does this? Your mind begins to calculate, well, I'll wait till the light comes on and I can loosen my seatbelt and then I'll spring into that seat and then I found out that's not good enough. I see the flight attendant saying, hey, um, as soon as we, we reach our cruising altitude, would it be all right for me to go up there and sit in that seat? I want to say it loud enough so everybody else can hear. And then they'll say, well, of course sir. Yeah, go right ahead. Except those times when they tell me no. But um, yeah, I've had them actually tell me, would you please return to your assigned seat? <laughs> that's an embarrassing moment. Anyway, that's me. That's me. You know, I, I, I'm going to find a way to get comfortable. I'm like, I'm like that dog that circles his bed until he's ready to lay down. You know, that's who we are. And he says, don't allow that to dominate you. Don't let that take control of you. Don't let that desire to escape the struggles of faith and pull back and, and become timid and quiet. Be confident. You don't have to be rash. You don't have to be bold or brash or you know, obnoxious and ignoring. Some people think that the way to be bold is to be really loud and get on people's nerves. Well, that's not, it has nothing to do with it. What it has is to not feel like we have to be apologetic or make excuses or be ashamed or embarrassed but we speak confidently, we speak forthrightly about what we believe and, we, and the truth of Jesus. And he, that's the power of, of the message that people, uh, most people are driven by their human natures and, and go through much of life either trying to blow everybody out of the water or avoid any conflict whatsoever. Most are on the other hand, avoiding conflict. 
But he says we're not to be on either of those extremes. We're to be those people who just simply very calmly and forthrightly declare what we believe to be the truth. And that is our, our testimony. And that's something that stands out in every culture and in every time in human history. Well, as terms of the key verse, and in this case, as always, I am certain that I know what the key verse, the most important central verse of the book is. Uh, regardless of anything you write, read by anybody else, I'm correct, just follow me. <laughs> but my, my favorite, quite honestly, is chapter 12, verse 2, where he says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Uh, what I think is so key about that particular verse, because I think it summarizes everything that is written in the letter. If you break it down, the idea is what's the key to victory? It's keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus and not getting distracted. Not looking at other things or pursuing other things, but staying focused on seeking Jesus and living for Jesus. Because why? Because he's not only the author, the one who is the beginner, the originator of our faith, but he's also the one who will finish it and bring it to a completion. He's the beginning and the end. So that everything that God wants to do in me will be done by my devotion to Jesus. If I focus on Jesus, he will cause the universe to come into agreement with what God is doing in my life. You see, many of us think we have to get out there and make everything kind of come together. We get, we, we, we've got to control the dynamics. And he says, no, seek Jesus. I'll control the dynamics. I'll cause, I'll cause the universe uh, not to conspire against you, but they will conspire with you so that your life can be a statement of the fulfillment of my will for you. Uh, and so he goes on, why did Jesus do all of these things? He says, because the joy that was set before him, which is, we're told in other letters, the joy is you in the presence of God. The joy of seeing others come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why he endured the cross. And his point is, don't give up on enduring. Because what, the reason we, we're enduring these hardships is because we want to see other people meet the Savior in the same way that we have. So scorn the shame, because one day you too will sit down in the right hand of God the Father. So I think the whole book is just kind of encapsulated in that one verse. Which brings me to, so what is the outline of the verse, of the chapter, of the book? How do we break it down? Um, I break it down pretty simply because I think it really is laid out pretty simply, although the arguments and much of the verbiage is pretty complicated and, and pretty high-level uh, conversation. But he, most of the book is talking about why Jesus is superior to everything else in the law. And he starts off in, in verse 1, chapter 1, by saying, in the past, you know, referring back to the old covenant, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in very various ways. So that was the thing that they took pride in, that we were the people who had the oracles of God. Remember what Paul said in Romans? What advantage then is there to being a Jew? He says, much in every way, for the oracles of God were given to them. The, the declarations of God were given to them. I mean, this was an honorable thing. This was an amazing thing that one people would receive the revelation of God's truth. But then he says, and he throws in that very large, but... In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. 
And who is the Son? Well, Him who He appointed to be the heir of all things. Everything belongs to Him. Through whom He made the very universe. He spoke the universe into existence. Then He says the Son is the radiance of God's glory. How do you separate glory and radiance? I mean, the, the radiance of the glory means that's a sum total of everything that is wondrous about God. He is God's expression. That, and then he goes on, the exact representation of his being. In other words, if I want to see God on earth, I see it in Jesus. That's why we read the Gospels. I see the exact representation of the heart of God moving in the midst and the world of men. He says, going on sustaining all things by his powerful word. He not only created, but he's holding the whole thing together. So that your uh, atomic uh, being, your, your, your carbon-based molecules are all held together and sustained in this thing that is you by the very power of Jesus Christ. He causes all things to consist, to hang together. And after he had provided purification for sins, then he sat down in the right hand of majesty in heaven. That he once and forever solved the greatest human problem, and that is the problem of sin that brings death, destruction, and eternal condemnation upon mankind. He goes on in chapter 1 to briefly talk about, you know, he's more superior to the angels. I won't linger with that very long. He says in chapter 3 that he's superior to Moses. In verse 3 of chapter 3, he's worthy of greater honor than Moses. Uh, keep in mind to a Jew who reverences the law of God, the Torah, the five books of Moses. I mean, that's an amazing statement. This is the guy who went up in the mountains, saw God's hind parts, you know, God revealed his glory to him, and he, he, he came down with tablets of stone written by the finger of God with the, with the Ten Commandments, and from that wrote out the entire uh, law of God, the whole 613 commandments with all their instructions, rituals, statutes, and so forth and so on. I mean, it's a pretty pretty elevated stature, and yet he says, but Jesus is greater than Moses. He says he's superior to Joshua, who is really, in a sense, was the father of the promised land. When he says in chapter 4, verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, in other words, if the rest of God, if the answer to what man yearns for in his soul had been, could be gotten by coming in and taking possession of the land of promise, the land of Canaan, God would not have spoken about a latter day, uh, a, 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 another one to come, another rest to come in the future. So that no matter what they had accomplished through the grace of God, they would never find fulfillment by their life in this world. And then in chapter 4, in verse 15, he goes on saying he was superior to the Aaronic priesthood. And again, keep in mind that the, the sons of Aaron, who were the priests, the high priests, were the key to atonement. To atonement meaning being in right relationship with God. It was through the offering of the sacrifices that you got into right relationship with God. And yet he says Jesus was greater. In fact, he says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, which is why he became a man. He understands the stuff you struggle with. But we have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. One minor difference. <laughs> Tempted in everything that you and I go through, he just never said yes to temptation and never said no to God. And that does make us distinct. That means that's why we needed to have someone who would, who would die in our place. He says, 
Therefore, he says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. What is the throne of grace? Well, the mercy seat, even the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the holiest of holies of the temple, and it had a seat which was made like a, a king's throne, and it was called the mercy seat because when the high priest went in once a year, sprinkled blood on the mercy seat, it, it extended atonement for the entire nation. It was where the nation received mercy from God. And he says, we call it the mercy seat. He says, now you and I can come with confidence now keep in mind, the high priest never went in with confidence. Before he ever went in with that offering, and he could only go in once a year by himself, he had to offer a sin offering for the nation. He had to offer a sin offering for himself. And then some traditions say that when he went in there, they tied a rope around his ankle just in case God struck him dead for some unconfessed sin so they could remove his body because if he got struck dead, nobody could go in and get it. <laughs> so you'd have to lay there and rot for the whole year, you know which is about how long it would take for him to stop stinking. But the whole point was that there was nobody who ever went into the Holy of Holies with confidence. But he says, we can come with confidence before God because our sins have been forgiven. We know that we are pure in His sight. And even though I can look at myself on one hand and say, well, I've failed God in this regard and in that regard. I've said yes to sin. I've said no to God at various times in my life. Yet all of that has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I know that when I go to him and I say, Father, have mercy upon me, I will receive mercy. I know when I say, God, forgive me for my sins, he will forgive me. Many of us have trouble believing that for ourselves. We believe it for other people. We may even tell other people that. But believing it for ourselves, well, yeah, I know it's true, but gee, golly, it doesn't seem like I should get whacked or something, you know? <laughs> like God should say, okay, I forgive you, and when we're not watching, he hits us with a two-by-four just to make sure we don't forget or something, you know? It's just, just because your parents were that way, doesn't, well, maybe that my childhood. Okay, uh, you know, just because you, you ha had those kind of experiences in life doesn't mean <laughs> that's where God is. God says, I forgive. And, and, and it's so important for us just to believe that, to believe that. You don't earn any extra angel points by moaning and groaning and flagellating and punishing yourself and doing some extra credit work for God. I'm going to witness to just one extra person every day. I mean, we think like this, don't we? Please say yes. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, maybe you guys got it figured out and I'm the one with the problems here. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but it's just... And, and it's really kind of unfortunate because it's so absolutely unnecessary. In fact, can I be so bold as to say, I think it's offensive to God? It's almost like saying Jesus' blood wasn't enough. Believe me, it was enough. It paid for your sins. Confess them, they're forgiven. And there's no reason to make constant reference to them. Well, that's why he says, let us approach with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of our need. You ever find yourself doing this? I know you do. That's why I say these things. <laughs> Where you just allow yourself to get drawn down into a depressed state and all you need to do is just say, Lord Jesus, I need you to give me grace right now. I need a miracle, I need, a, I need forgiveness, I need joy, I need victory, I need deliverance, I need to feel your power, I need to feel your love, and, but we don't do that. We sit there and go, well, I don't really deserve to be loved, I don't really deserve to be And we sit there and moan and groan, and it's, again, you know, it, it, it's so unnecessary. 
that God says, ask and I will give. <laughs> Just ask me and I'll give you the help that you need. And this will probably shock you, but I've tried it and it works. <laughs> it really works. That somebody has to just sit there and say, hey, just thank him for the fact that you're forgiven and just go on. Well, he's our high priest. The high priest carried the sacrifice of the blood into the holy place to make it efficacious for the, for the person who was asking the person didn't carry it in, the priest carried it in, and Jesus carried it in. Jesus did it for us. We don't do it for ourselves. The sixth thing he says about him is he's severe to all the covenants. Uh, the co basically, there were seven different covenants that, uh, that God made with Israel. Uh, and he says in chapter 8, verse 6, the, 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 co the new covenant is superior to the old one. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant... Uh, there would have no been, been no place to seek for another. In other words, he goes to quote Jeremiah who says, I will give them a new covenant. He says, why do you need to give them a new covenant if the old one is good enough? It's because the old one wasn't adequate. That's why he gives them give a new covenant. He talks about what it is in verse 10. He says, this is the covenant I will make. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. I'll remember their sins no more. Why are you? continuing to remember your sins. When he says, I will remember your sins no more. And then he says in verse 13, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Now you think about this, this being written prior to 70 AD, 70 AD the temple was destroyed. Do you realize that in 70 AD the whole system of Judaism has ceased to function as God ordained it? Because it was all built upon the sacrificial altar where they could offer sacrifice to sin. That's why every time the Jews have attempted to rebuild the temple, you know what the very first thing they rebuild? The altar. <laughs> the altar. That's why every year there's a group of, of Jews who attempt to go up on the Temple Mount with stones, and you know what they want to do? They want to lay the stone to the altar, not the foundation of the building, because nothing can be done until the altar is built and sacrifice has been made. And so essentially, he just basically says to him that this is going to disappear and it has not existed since 70 AD. The temple has been destroyed and has never been rebuilt. The only time it's going to be rebuilt, we're told, is during the tribulation period when the Antichrist is going to allow the, enter into a covenant with the Jews. They're going to rebuild the temple. And before they can even sanctify it with offering, he will take it over, declare himself to be God, put his image in the holiest of holies where the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be, and declare that he is God and he should be worshipped and that sacrifice and offering should be made to him. They won't even be able to pull it up. So why is it that the temple and the altar has never been rebuilt? Because God said it's obsolete and it will disappear, and they can try all they want. They can huff, and they can puff, and they can do whatever they want. It won't happen because God says, no, that covenant is fulfilled in the sacrifice that met every need. Finally, the seventh thing he says, it's superior to the temple and all the other sacrifices. In chapter 9, he says in verse 11, when Christ came as high priest, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made not by means of blood of goats and of calves, but once for all by his own blood. One of the reasons that we 
don't believe in, in the celebration of the mass, for those who might wonder, the idea, that, the, the idea that Christ is sacrificed repeatedly is because of statements like this where he says Christ was sacrificed once and for all. His atonement for sin doesn't need to be repeated whether figuratively or literally it was completed once and for all uh, by his death on the cross. He says, therefore, how much more then will the blood of Christ cleanse our consciences and acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Cleanse our consciences and acts that lead to death. So what? So that we can serve God. You see, what hinders a lot of people from really being available to serve God is their conscience keeps on niggling at them and they keep on depreciating themselves and talking about, well, I'm not worthy and I'm not good enough and I'm not capable and I'm not skilled and I'm not talented. Of course you aren't. As if those things made any difference because nobody ever has been. But their conscience becomes saying, well, I, I did this thing when I was in the fourth grade and I don't think that God can ever forgive me. Um, the point is that your conscience is clean because whatever made it soiled was forgiven by Christ when you believed on him. And he not only did that, he changed the, as we talked about last weekend, he changed the very motives and, and appetites of your heart so that you no longer live as one who fulfills the acts of things that lead to death. Therefore, you are able to serve the living God. There's literally nothing that hinders you as a believer from serving God except the things that the enemy convinces you of to your own, dist your own hindrance. Which uh, he, in chapter 10, we come to the second section where essentially he's saying, in light of all of that, stand fast. In fact, he says five times in chapter 10, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Again, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Let us spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, he's saying that all of the obstacles and hindrances to moving forward with God have been taken away through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Let us move forward. Let us no longer hang back, but let us be energetic and trust God for success in serving Him and living for Him. And then he goes on in chapter 11 to saying, and essentially, let us be like that cloud of witnesses. And he lists all of these greats of the faith that have come before. But I like what he says in verse 13 of chapter 11 about this, this, this history of, of great men and women of faith. He says, they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on the earth. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Here's an interesting insight. What was the secret to their faith? The secret to their faith was they knew they didn't make earth and what they could do on earth their destination. Their destination was heaven. I'm not home until I'm home. 
<laughs> you know, and, and home is heaven. So he said, how did they endure all that stuff? How did they continue moving forth? Because they were aliens and strangers here on earth. They weren't trying to find their best life now. Boy, that'd be a great title for a book, wouldn't it be? Well, they weren't trying to find their best life now. They were trying to live their life the best they could for what was waiting for them in eternity. And then finally, in chapter 12, again, where I said the thematic verse of the chapter uh, about fixing our eyes on Jesus, he begins that chapter in verse 1 by saying, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. I mean, it's such, such wonderful words. But we know that what are the things that, that happen? He says, there are, there are all sorts of, of things that hinder us, that just get in the way and, and, and stop us and keep us from moving forward. He says, push that stuff aside. And he says, don't allow yourself to be, become entangled in things. Because there are all sorts of things that do that. And he says, just strip that away, anything that keeps you from being able to fulfill the course. You know, one of the things I used to always love when I'd watch Marshawn Lynch carry the football is he didn't let anybody hinder or entangle him. <laughs> I mean, that's why they call it beast mode, you know? It was like, it just, there was this, you could just, it's almost like he knew where he was going to go, and when he got tackled, it was like he was disappointed that he didn't go the entire length of the field. Every time he got the ball, he ran with this expectation that he was going to cross the goal line on the other end. And that was the thing that I find quite remarkable about him. Now, I'm the same way, except I don't have his body, and I would die the first time I touched the ball. I mean, you know, but the whole point is you look at that, that fortitude, what was really going on there. It wasn't just that he was a physical, well, I was going to say an animal, but he was, man, he was, a, he was an amazing physical being, right? I get that. But there are a lot of guys who had great physical presence who never came close to doing what he wanted. How did he do it? He was a guy that had one intention every time he touched the ball, and that was to run the length of the field and score a touchdown. And even though he didn't have it, that was the intention. And I'm saying that what, what the writer here is saying is we need to live our life with that kind of intense intentionality, that our expectation is that we're going to score for Jesus every time we get the ball, that we're those people who are just basically saying, my life is not defined by the bookends of birth and death. My life is defined by when I go across that eternal line, goal line, and I stand in the presence of the living God. That's really what I'm striving towards. Everything else is just details. But what really matters is that I fulfill that calling for which God has called me. And uh, how do you do that? You fix your eyes on that. You fix your eyes on heaven. Because believe me, there's a lot of stuff. Well, you don't have to believe me. You know it for yourself. There's a lot of stuff that happens every day in your life, in my life, right? That makes you want to say, oh, I'm just so tired. I just think I'll sit down and open up a can of worms. You know, it's, we do this. And he says, don't do that. Keep your eyes fixed on the prize of the calling that God's giving you in Christ Jesus. Run to win. Every time Jesus gives you the ball, which he does every morning when you wake up, 
Live that day as one who plans on scoring for the king. And um, you'll do well. You'll do well. Last chapter 13, <clears throat> various exhortations. You need to read them. Let's pray. <laughs> Father God, I pray that you would just um, uh, help us to get a snapshot in our mind of this book, of its message, of its exhortations, some of the most certainly remarkable and invaluable statements in all of the Bible are found within its pages. Lord, we pray that you would just stir us and that, Lord, as you know, my goal ultimately in doing this every week is that people would become so captured by the book that they would want to read it and read it and reread it for themselves. Give them this grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.